Hey, Mariners family, welcome to church. This is a worship center of our Irvine location, and I miss the sound of your voices in this room. I miss the times we were able to gather in one place together, but what I'm grateful for in this season is how God has taught us so much about who he is and how he's expanded our understanding of what worship is. You see, worship is not about you, it's not about me. Worship is not about a time or a location. Worship is also not just about the songs that we sing, but I'm grateful that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, because he lives inside each of us, and he's with us wherever we go. Worship goes beyond circumstance or location, and we are free because Christ declared us free when he shed his blood on the cross for our sins. So what do we do with this freedom? We respond with greater surrender. And as we respond with greater surrender, we give him uninhibited worship with whatever form and method we can. And in the midst of dark times, we give him our praise. Today, as we worship, we remember a place like Lebanon where they are experiencing devastation. And we pray that God would come and heal. We pray also as we worship for those experiencing darkness and trials and tribulations that God would meet you where you are. So come on, church, now is the time to rise up and give him his worship. Now is the time to fix our eyes on Jesus and to say, God, you are our hope, you are our peace, and we will see the victory because Jesus, you won the victory on the cross. So come on, let's worship together. When the darkness falls, it won't reveal. Cause the God I serve knows only how to triumph. Oh, my God will never fail. Oh, my God will never fail. I will see a victory. Yes. 
You know, we have so many reasons to celebrate. And I want to highlight one thing. Last week, over a thousand kids from all over Orange County got to take part in the Mariners VBS. They learned more about Jesus in these fun environments hosted in over 200 homes. And it was a beautiful picture of how God continues to move through the generosity of his people. Because of your generosity, we're able to put things like VBS together. And because of your giving, we're able to continue to serve and meet the ever-changing needs of our community. As a parent of two elementary age kids, a few weeks ago, just like you, I freaked out just a little bit because we found out that the new school year would start online, distance learning in the home. My kids would be the first to tell you that I'm the worst teacher they've ever had. So we're in need of a lot of help. And I'm so grateful for our church because they want to come alongside us by way of Mariners in the Gap. Mariners wants to come alongside you, whether you're looking for help with distance learning or childcare, whether you're looking for after-school enrichment activities or recreation for your kids, or you're simply trying to find a way to make this parent-student cohort thing work out for you, we want to help. And all you got to do is text FAMILY to the number that you see below. And as you do that, you're going to find out more information on how you can receive the help that you need, or how you can step into the many areas of need and serve. That would be so great to have you involved with this. And finally, as we do approach this new school year, we wanna take the time to pray for our students, our parents, and our teachers. Jesus, we lift up our students, our parents, our teachers as we approach a new school year. And we know God that this is gonna be challenging for everybody. We pray, God, for an extra measure of grace, for an extra season where we know, God, that we're going to need you to carry through, carry us through these difficult moments. God, give us strength and insight. Be with the teachers. Give them strength and wisdom and insight and encouragement. I pray, God, that your spirit would encourage them even now as we pray. Give them an outlook and a perspective, God, that is from you. Give them a peace that transcends all understanding. So Jesus, we continue to look to you. We worship you. We praise you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the name above every name. To break every chain, 
his power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the mighty, mighty, mighty name of Jesus. I see the change fall in his power in the name of Jesus. To break every chain, you're breaking my chains. I know you'll break chains. Breaking chains of depression, breaking chains of fear, break every chain. You're breaking chains of hurt. You're breaking chains of doubt. You're breaking chains of addiction. You're breaking chains of pain. The past, you're breaking it. And it's a good breaking because we know when we're in your hands, all things are possible. There is power in the name of Jesus. I know it to be true that there is power in the mighty name of Jesus. Let the restore this power in the name of Jesus. Oh, yeah. Break every chain. Break every chain. Break every chain. God, what a powerful name that is. I know in my own life, I've experienced you break chains. When I felt abandoned and alone, you broke those chains. And you allow us to walk in freedom just by one name, the name that is Jesus Christ. So we praise you and glorify you. Open our hearts, open our eyes so that we can receive your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'm so glad you are gathered with Mariner's Church this weekend. My name is Eric. I'm the senior pastor here. And if we haven't met, I'm really honored that you are with us this weekend. In this season, we have people who are a part of Mariner's Church in a variety of different ways based on their comfort with gathering. Some of you are most comfortable watching Mariner's Online with friends or with family just in the comfort of your home. Some of you have opened up your circle a bit larger and you've invited people over for Mariners hosted at home, friends and neighbors. And it's, it's a larger group that is gathering around a television and is watching the service together and worshiping alongside one another. And if you are ready to have church that way, to open your home and to invite people in your circle to worship alongside you, I invite you to do that. We have dozens of homes that are open this weekend and we would love, our team would love to help you host Mariners at your home. You just text the word host to the number on the screen, and we will help you have church right where you are with a group of people. I also want to welcome all of our Mariners in the neighborhood gatherings. We have eight different neighborhood locations throughout Orange County this weekend. In fact, we started Mariners Irvine as a neighborhood location this weekend at our Irvine location, five different services. All of these neighborhood gatherings are outside, they're spacious, they're airy, they're physical distanced. People have to re reserve their spot before they come. Reservations always open Monday at noon. And this weekend at Mariners Irvine, we are piloting an outdoor kids ministry, which we plan to scale to all of the other places in coming weeks. And then at some point soon, we're actually planning the weekend after Labor Day, we're gonna open the lawns at Mariners Irvine and we're gonna have outdoor worship gatherings together. But when we do that, we'll continue all of the other options for you to be a part of our church during this time. So this weekend, we are starting a new series called Overcoming the Enemy Within, which is really a continuation of a series that we began way back in March, studying the seven deadly sins. And we stopped that after the pandemic began. And many of you emailed, you sent messages on social media saying, when are we gonna finish studying sin? I wanna study sin. Congratulations, here we go. We're gonna finish looking at the seven deadly sins over the next four weeks. And the list of the seven deadly sins is a list that scholars and theologians have put together over the centuries saying these are the vices that really steal our joy and can ruin our lives. And this weekend, we're gonna look at the vice of anger or wrath and overcoming that enemy within us. Anger or wrath is really the premise 
of the movie The Purge and the subsequent television show that followed. You don't have to watch The Purge to understand the compelling storyline. And the compelling storyline is this, that the founding fathers or the government leaders believed that society would be much happier if people did not repress their rage, but expressed their rage, if they were able to release it. And so one night a year, any crime is legal. People are able to express their anger. And the viewpoint is that when, when they do, that they'll be calm and peaceful and everything will be better if people don't hold in their anger. But as the show continues, here's what we find in The Purge, that the more anger is expressed, the more it is elicited. The more that anger is unleashed, the more it actually builds and destroys the people. They are unable to purge themselves from their anger and their rage and their wrath. But hey, that's just fiction, right? I mean, that's not real life, right? I mean, surely that's not what happens to us. But really, we've seen the very same thing. The more we express our anger, oftentimes anger just builds up in us and we are destroyed by anger. It's happening in the real world. Tim Kreider of the New York Times, he's the one who coined the term outrage porn to describe our culture's insatiable search for things to be offended by. Kreider believes that people love feeling right and feeling wronged. That if you feel right and you look down on people who don't feel the same way you feel or believe the same things you believe that therefore they wrong you and people love to feel right and therefore feel wronged and this emboldens them to act out on their rage. Outrage porn is the term also used to describe the media who on all sides often does to us with stories meant to pull out our rage. Some have even called this the age of outrage where stories are constantly given to us that causes us to feel superior and to look down on others and to feel enraged towards them because they don't think or act the same way that we do. And here's the reality about outrage porn, just like other porn, it has this addictive sense. It pulls you in and you so badly are offended and upset and you wanna unleash your rage on other people. Outrage porn attracts eyeballs, which then creates this whole system where we constantly are confronted with things that are meant to make us angry. All of us, Eric included, struggles with some degree with our anger, and we are living in a culture that is designing to pull anger out of us. Do you remember when COVID-19 first happened in March, there were stay-at-home orders, and I remember people saying things like this. This is gonna be so good for us. This is gonna cause us to slow down and appreciate the simple things in life. We're gonna be much calmer during this time. But have we become more calm? Culturally, have we become more calm? Really, what COVID-19 has done is it's only pulled out whatever we were already struggling with. COVID-19 has not muffled our anger. It has caused our anger to come to the surface. And we are seeing our anger destroy others. And you are likely seeing at times your anger causing you to not enjoy life as much as you should. Anger destroys others, but anger also destroys us. And so this weekend, we want to talk about overcoming the enemy of anger that is within us. As we talk about overcoming the enemy of anger and replacing anger with forgiveness, there are several foundational truths that I want us to understand. First is not all anger is bad. There is such a thing as holy anger or righteous anger. When you read the scriptures, you see that Jesus got angry twice in the gospels. He overthrew tables in the temple as the temple 
was being defamed. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Now, in our self-deception, all of us think that our anger surely is the righteous kind of anger. But we likely think our anger is more righteous than it is because when you look at the life of Jesus, anger was not the dominating theme of his life. People did not walk behind Jesus and say, oh, that's an angry person. In fact, Jesus did not describe himself as an angry person. He described himself as gentle and humble and lowly at heart. And so we must be careful that we don't assume that our anger must be the righteous kind of anger. We should really evaluate if our anger is so. But there is a righteous anger. The book of Ephesians says, be angry, but do not sin, meaning you can actually be angry and not sin. There is this holy anger. And how do we know the difference between holy anger and unholy anger that consumes us and destroys us? Holy anger or righteous anger is when we are angered with the things that anger God. When our anger and our indignation is rooted and grounded in the Lord's name being defamed. And anger is not the opposite of love. I mean, I love my daughters, and because I love my daughters, I should be angry if they were taken advantage of. And because God loves people, we should be angered when people are taken advantage of or oppressed, and that should anger us. But there's also this unholy anger. And unholy anger is very different. It's when our anger is rooted not in the Lord's name being defamed, but in our name, in our reputation, in our agenda, when we are the center of the anger. So number one, not all anger is bad. And what we're gonna talk about replacing in our lives is the unholy anger. And two, as we talk about forgiveness, I wanna be sure we understand that there's a difference between forgiveness and restoration. Some of you have been hurt very badly. You've been taken advantage of. Some of you have even been abused. And as I speak of forgiveness, I don't want you to hear me say that forgiveness and restoration is the same thing. We should forgive. We are commanded to forgive even for our own sake. But restoration, everything being right with that person, requires repentance on that person's part. And so we should forgive because Christ has forgiven us, but restoration doesn't always occur. But as we speak of the unholy anger or the unrighteous anger, I want us to get really frustrated with our unholy anger. I want you to get righteously anger at your unrighteous anger. I want you to have this holy anger towards your unholy anger because it can ruin your life. And we're gonna see that in the story of Saul and David 1 Samuel chapter 18, we've been familiar with this narrative over the last several months as we've read some of the Psalms, but we're going to look at this through the lens of the anger that Saul held and how it was destroying him. So notice with me in verse 6, as the troops were coming back when David was returning from killing the Philistine, that is Goliath, the women came out from all the cities of Israel to meet King Saul singing and dancing with tambourines, with shouts of joy, and with three stringed instruments. As they danced, the women sang, and check out their song. When this hurt Saul, it angered Saul. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Saul was furious and resented this song. This is what he said. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. He was filled with fury, resentment, and jealousy. And this fury, this anger inside of him that he could not purge himself of, it only grew as he expressed this. It didn't go away when he expressed it. It only elicited more anger within him. This anger wasn't holy anger because it wasn't grounded in the Lord's name being defamed. It was grounded in his name being violated. It was all about him. He was the center of his anger and his anger grew. Our anger always tends to grow. In fact, there's seven chapters in the Bible of Saul's anger towards David. When you get to 
chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, verse 14, the scripture says, David stayed in the wilderness. This is because he ran from Saul. In the wilderness strongholds and in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand David over to him. Every single day, Saul woke up filled with his anger and he searched for David because he could not control his rage. His unholy anger was eating him up. I've wondered, why are there seven chapters in the Bible from 1 Samuel 18 when Saul is first angry all the way to this 1 Samuel 23 and 24? I mean, there's all these chapters and I've wondered, why are there so many chapters in the Bible that shows Saul chasing David all over the countryside? I mean, surely, Lord, you could have in two or three verses said, hey, Saul wasted years of his life chasing David. Why does there have to be so many chapters in the Bible that tells this narrative? And what I've concluded is, even for my own soul, it is God showing me, Eric, this is how ridiculous and how foolish you are when you allow your unholy anger to control you. I mean, you waste so much time. There's two things that an unrighteous anger can steal from your life. And this is a good way for you to evaluate if the anger you feel in this moment is holy or unholy. Two things you will see stolen from your life. And if it's unholy anger, you will lose your perspective and you will lose your peace. If it's holy anger, you can actually be angry and not sin, meaning you will be filled with anger, but still have your peace and still have your perspective. But Saul lost both. He lost perspective and he lost peace. He wasted years of his life. He lost his perspective. He started acting like a foolish leader. He wasted so many military resources pursuing David all over the countryside. He wasted so much time and so many good moments in his life were squandered as he was filled with this rage. He lost his perspective and made foolish and horrific decisions as a leader. He chased after David and he didn't chase after God. He pursued David and he stopped pursuing God. And that's what unholy anger can do to us. It can actually cause us to chase after the wrong things. Have you ever been angry with somebody and you chased them around in your mind? I've been there where you have this anger and you go to sleep at night or you try to go to sleep at night and you're replaying a conversation from earlier in the day and you're imagining next time I'll say this. Have you ever chased somebody in your mind? like Saul chased David across the countryside. Maybe you've chased somebody that you're angry at online. You followed them around on their social media accounts and, and you're hoping to come across a post where they're saying how sad they are with life or how miserable they are because that's what they deserve. And you are so frustrated when they post a picture and everything's great with their life. And then you look at how many likes they got or favorites they got and oh, how are people liking them? Have you ever chased somebody like that? It, it isn't good, is it? We lose our perspective and we actually act more foolish because of our anger. In fact, the book of Proverbs says this, a patient person shows great understanding, but a quick tempered one promotes foolishness. If you want to make foolish decisions, make decisions when you are angry because a quick tempered person promotes foolishness. We lose our perspective when we are filled with this unholy anger. We also lose our peace, we lose our peace. Chris Aiken, he's a doctor at Wake Forest University and, and his research concludes that when we have this outburst of rage or this outburst of anger, that the, the following two hours, the likelihood of us having a heart attack, it doubles, we, we, lose, we lose peace. Medical community says anger actually hurts us medically. Doctors from Harvard concluded that after an outburst of anger or even when remembering things from your past that have made you angry, that your immune system lowers significantly for up to six hours. There was an article in the Journal of Cognitive Behavior Therapy that found anger is a multiplier for anxiety. 
So if you struggle with anxiety, whatever level of anxiety you struggle with, anger just multiplies your anxiety. Anger can take away our peace. It hurts us. It ruins us. And as much as we like to think that our anger is actually hurting the other person, our anger really doesn't hurt the other person. The other person is fine. They're laying on the beach drinking a Mai Tai while we are filled with this rage. And Lamont, she said it very pointedly. She said, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. We're the ones that suffer. We have our peace taken away from us. This was Saul. You saw in the scripture that every single day he was chasing David, every single day. Just imagine every single day Saul woke up filled with fury and he spent his day chasing David around, which is really the opposite of what the scripture teaches us in Ephesians 4, which is don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Because if you let the sun go down on your anger, you'll give the devil a foothold, an opportunity, and you will lose your peace. You've heard people say this before. You've heard people say, hey, let's just sleep on it. Let's just sleep on it. But don't sleep on your anger. Because if you go to sleep on your anger, you will wake up filled with a loss of perspective and a loss of peace. I know this, there's times I've gone to sleep filled with some anger, thinking the next day will be better, but I wake up with my energy sapped and the anger hasn't subsided, it's only multiplied. So we must deal with our anger before we even go to sleep. Frederick Buechner, he said it this way, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you were given and the pain you were given back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Unholy anger destroys us. We wolf down ourselves. We lose our perspective and we lose our peace. We think we're purging ourselves of our rage, but we're only destroying ourselves. There has to be a better way than this. When we look at the story of Saul and David, we really do see a different way, a better way. Because Saul was consumed with his rage and his anger, but David, responded very differently. And David had things to be angry about. Saul was chasing him all over the countryside. David was losing so much in his life, yet David responds to anger with forgiveness, but he doesn't only forgive, he also trusts that God is the one who's going to bring vengeance, that God is going to somehow make things right. He trusts the Lord to fix all of this, He believes that the Lord is ultimately in charge and he expresses forgiveness to Saul. And we're gonna see that that's how we overcome the enemy within of our unholy anger. David wrote this about overcoming anger. He wrote in Psalm chapter four, verse four, be angry and do not sin. So again, there's an anger that's not sinful. Be angry and do not sin. And here's how. On your bed, reflect in your heart and be still. So if you want to not sin, to not be consumed with this unholy anger, reflect in your heart and be still. Reflect and be still. So what do we reflect on? We're gonna see, we reflect on two things. David reflected surely on these two things. Your eternal justification is in the past, number one. And number two, eternal justice is in the future. One of my favorite quotes comes from Corey Ten Boom, who wrote, God takes our sins, the past, present, and future, and casts them into the sea and puts up a sign that says, no fishing allowed. 
We actually have a rock at Mariner's Irvine with this quote right by our lake to remind us that our sins are completely forgiven. Corey Ten Boom, who wrote that quote, has this incredible story. Corey Ten Boom and her father and her sister during World War II rescued and helped Jewish people who were fleeing Nazi Germany. They helped those Jewish people escape. And they were caught. And because they were caught, they were put into a concentration camp. And in the concentration camp, Corrie Ten Boom's sister passed away. And after Corrie Ten Boom was released, she went back to Germany and she began to share God's grace with people all throughout Germany. One night she was teaching and she taught this very thing, that God forgives us and he cast our sins into the sea. And he puts up a sign that says no fishing because we're fully forgiven. After she taught that, a Nazi soldier came up to her, someone she recognized from the concentration camp where she was. She wrote of the encounter about the moment where he asked for forgiveness, and it's incredible. He approached her and said this, how good is it to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. She writes, he would not remember me, but I recognized him. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrück, that was the concentration camp. I was a guard there, but since that time, I've become a Christian. I know that God's forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I want to hear it from you. And he reached out his hand and said, will you forgive me? Corey Ten Boom writes, I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, but I could not forgive. Betsy, her sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking. He stood in front of me. It seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. And as I stood there with the coldest clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much. Jesus, you supply the feeling. And so she lifted her hand to this man who had been her captor. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then, but even so, I realized it was not my love. The only reason that Corey Ten Boom could express forgiveness is because she really believed this, that God had fully forgiven her. The, the Christian understanding of forgiveness is one that is grounded in Christ's forgiveness of us. The Apostle Paul wrote this in the book of Ephesians, chapter four, verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. So, so get rid of the enemy within of anger, but you're gonna have to replace it. And this is verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. The basis for our forgiveness of others is that Christ has forgiven us. The only way that we can forgive is when we're overwhelmed with the reality that we are forgiven. Our judgment day is in the past. Our eternal justification is in the past. What does that mean? That means when Christ put himself on the cross in our place for our sin, we were fully forgiven, those of us who receive his forgiveness. We are not gonna stand in judgment before God because Christ was judged in our place back in the past. We are fully forgiven. And when our hearts are overwhelmed with the reality that Christ forgave us, only then can we forgive others. When I read stories like Corey Ten Boone, I'm blown away at how she forgave. And I realize that the offenses I've needed to forgive others for in my life pale in comparison to what she needed to forgive. But all of the offenses pale in comparison to what Christ has forgiven in us. 
because we sinned against our holy God and he forgave the inexcusable in us by placing himself on the cross to offer all of his forgiveness for us. C.S. Lewis said it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Your eternal justification is in the past, number one. And number two, eternal justice is in the future. David was able to forgive Saul, but he also believed that God was going to make things right in the end. David released being the one that had to bring vengeance because he trusted God to be the one who would bring judgment to Saul. He wasn't gonna be the one who brought vengeance. He trusted God to do that. He trusted that in the future, God was going to bring justice. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, the scripture says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, oftentimes we struggle with this idea that we have a God who is filled with wrath or a God of vengeance. We can wrestle with this. I mean, whoa, what is this verse that God wants to bring vengeance? Mirsal Volf is a professor at Yale University and he's the director and the founder of their Center of Faith and Culture. And he says that believing in a God of vengeance is what helps us not take vengeance ourselves. That if we really believe that God is the one who's going to bring justice and God is the one that is going to make things right in the end, that will be our motivation to not feel the burden to bring vengeance ourselves. And he also says, he writes that if you don't believe in a God of vengeance, it's likely that you lived in a quiet suburban kind of life where your biggest problem is your neighbor's shrubs were over on your side of the house. But if you live in a place like he lived in Croatia, where he saw all kind of oppression throughout the Balkan region, that if you live in a place where you see so many horrific things happen, it, it is so comforting that there's a God of vengeance that is one day going to fix things and is one day going to make things right. In a land that is soaked with blood of your relatives and your friends, having a God of vengeance that is one day going to fix all of this causes you not to lose your mind and causes you not to want to bring vengeance yourself because you trust that this God is going to fix all things in the end. Eternal justice is in the future. It's in the future. And that's not a contradiction of God's forgiveness and grace is offered now. We have a God who, yes, forgives, but we have a God who is going to bring justice in the future. A great example of holding these things two together came in recent years. This is the book, What's a Girl Worth? by Rachel Denhollander. And she is the brave woman who stood up and rallied a group of women who had been abused on the U.S. women's gymnastic team. And at Larry Nassar's trial, the man who's now spending the rest of his life in prison for the abuse that he brought upon these women, Rachel was given the opportunity to share her victim impact statement. And she put her victim impact statement in the end of her book. And it is an incredible example of believing the Lord is going to bring vengeance and yet he's also a God who forgives. She looked at Larry Nasser, the man who had abused her and others and said these words to him at his sentencing. He had walked into the courtroom with a Bible throughout the trial. And she says this to him, the Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. She continued, 
This is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. So she's offering forgiveness, but then she also wants justice. So she looks at the judge at the end of the sentencing and she says this, Judge Aquina, I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth because their lives have been so traumatized. I beg of you to impose the maximum sentence. Here's an example of forgiveness and vengeance all together in one story. And that's David. He was extending forgiveness to Saul, but at the same time, he was not destroyed with wrath because he trusted that God was gonna one day make things right. There's another place where we see forgiveness and justice meet. And that is when Jesus places himself on the cross for our sin. Justice took place there because Jesus was punished for me and for you, for all of my sin and all of my shame. Jesus bore the cross. Justice is there, but so is forgiveness because on the cross, Jesus offers all of his forgiveness to us, all of his mercy to us, all of his grace to us. The cross is the maximum sentence given over to Jesus for us. I can't purge myself of my sin, of my unholy anger. I can't fix it. But Jesus, he came here to fix it for us. And he put himself on the cross and offered all of his mercy and all of his grace and all of our sin, it was put on him. And so justice and forgiveness is there. And because Jesus died for us, our justification is in the past. We can forgive because we've been forgiven, but also for those of you who are carrying such pain and it's hard to release the pain. You can look forward to a day when everything is made right. Eternal justice is in the future. You don't have to carry the weight of vengeance. Vengeance is the Lord's, he declares. To remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us, we're gonna take communion together. And this is a special moment. It's a moment that the scripture says, only those of us who have received Forgiveness, only those of us who know Christ should take. And we shouldn't take this casually, but we should take this with a sense of awe and appreciation for what he's done. And so we're gonna sing for a moment and prepare our hearts. And then in a moment, I'm gonna come and lead us to take communion together. Whether you're Mariners hosted at home or in the neighborhood or you're by yourself, why don't you spend some time with Jesus as we sing this song, and then I'm gonna lead us to take communion together.
Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. And he was going to go to the cross and place himself there where all of our sins are placed on him. So there's no more sin left on us. There's no more shame left on you. It was all put on Jesus for you. This is my body. Take and eat. Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for the gift, for the forgiveness of sins. We are forgiven because of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. You are forgiven because of Jesus. Take and drink. Will you extend your hands as I pray a prayer of blessing over you, Mariner's Church? Father, I pray for your sons and daughters. This new week that you've given them, I pray that you will bless them, that you will remind them that they belong to you because of your sacrifice for them on the cross. I pray that they will walk in the forgiveness and the freedom that you secured for them and that they will sense your mercy and your grace this new week in their life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mariner's Church, I love you. Have a great week.